Welcome to Pod Me If You Can, I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And this is our big 75th episode. What a milestone, Lloyd. Yeah, we made it all this way, huh? Can't believe it. Just so you guys know, I made it all the way to Melbourne. I'm sitting here with Dave at the moment and it is a beautiful day and I'm enjoying it here. It's uh, absolutely gorgeous city you guys got here we're gonna lock ourselves away from the beautiful weather just to get inside and record this podcast you can see it out there it looks good yeah yeah a lot of people probably wouldn't have realized that 20 odd episodes ago i moved to melbourne and you stayed in canberra yeah we've been doing this over skype and just with lloyd's clever editing skills we've been able to seamlessly bring you podcasts every week well we thought we would say a quick thank you Obviously, if you're hearing this, you're one of our listeners. So uh, anyone who's listened, requested films, or watched any of our YouTube reviews, look, we appreciate it. And um, comments and feedback, always welcomed. But, you know, we're doing this for ourselves, for a bit of a hobby. Um, But having people listen to it is obviously a fantastic compliment, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. So for our 75th episode, as the title of this podcast suggests, we're going to be delving into Steven Soderbergh who uh, has released so many films over the years, but recently renounced filmmaking. He's... uh, Strange. Very odd time to retire, and he's still young, you know. Still got a lot of films that he could obviously make, and he's decided to call it quits. Yeah, yeah, when you have Oscars for directing, (laughs) you would think that you can continue directing as long as you want, basically. It's, you know, uh, your ticket into every Hollywood party, you know, you get sent so many scripts, you must imagine. Um, but he's decided to paint. That's the word. Yeah, that's all here. I can't imagine him not continuing to produce films because he has Section 8 productions with uh, George Clooney. So I'm assuming at some point he may direct again. Mm. But for the moment, we're going to assume he is retiring with his final film, 2013's Behind the Candelabra. Mm-hmm. And we're going to delve into all of his back catalogue and just have a quick discussion about each one of the titles he's brought to us and uh, do a bit of a retrospective we did this once before um with the passing of tony scott in one of our previous episodes and i think it's it's nice to talk about a director and discuss all their work and their you know elements of their directing style and you know perhaps even the films they're making the choices behind what they've done you know rarely does a director feature so prominently on our podcast we've done uh, episodes on at least two of his films Um, as well as recommending others and I think we're both safe to say we're fans of his work absolutely I'm a big fan of Steven Sodenberg and he's been such a big impact of our lives growing up you know in the 80s and 90s he's been such a dominant figure so I've been looking forward to doing this podcast where we can just zero in purely on Steven Sodenberg and really celebrate his whole body of work and hopefully by the end of this you guys will be like wow he's got such a huge variety he's such an auteur and all the rest of it I think uh, he said that he doesn't like to be pigeonholed and um, that he doesn't like the big glossy name in lights and having a Steven Soderbergh film, you know, that tastes change and therefore I think it was something like, uh, you know, he doesn't want to become a brand that you invest in, you know. So by his not putting his own name you know, in lights at the head of every film. And he's film. so modest as well. He's done 22 audio commentaries and he always does it. His rule, he has to do it with someone. And if you listen to his audio commentaries, he's asking always them the questions. It's never about him and his films, which it's a good thing, I guess, because you're getting a great intelligent conversation such as the Solaris pod, um, audio commentary because he did it with James Cameron. But all the others, he's just asking them questions. You're like, oh, I just want to hear from you, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, yeah, he just doesn't seem to have that ego 
Yeah, well, he's very intelligent. <laughs> yeah, and he always seems to have a lot of extra features on the DVDs and yeah. stuff. You know, he's a filmmaker's filmmaker, isn't he? I think yeah. he appreciates that he was lucky to strike in 1989 with the first film we're going to go into. It's Sex, Lies and Videotape. Um, you know, he came in with this movement of independent filmmakers and like low budgets and the Sundance yeah. kids, you know. Yeah. I just thought I would quickly mention, though, obviously you've been listening for four minutes and a glowing introduction um, <laughs> but we may be discussing Steven Soderbergh's films with spoilers in mind we're going to delve into plots and probably endings of films um, so just a heads up we're going to announce each film before we talk about it so um, you'll have an opportunity to pause if <laughs> for whatever reason you haven't seen that film and desperately want to so the first one Lloyd is Sex Lies and Videotape yeah this one was written in eight days um, that's how the legend goes about it but on the audio commentary of Sex Lies and Videotapes he says that he actually had the film in his um, mind um, germinating and everything for a year um, so that that's pretty interesting that myth sort of broke right away because that was the most famous thing he wrote in eight days he made this film and won the palm door you know <laughs> yeah exactly I think there's a more realistic myth and it's about around Rocky because he did it in 30 days or whatever and it won Best Picture. Well, does that mean he wrote the script in 30 in days? In 30 days. Oh, that's the myth yeah. of it? Yeah, the, yeah. The myth of it. I think that he came up with it, wrote it in 30 days, and I think it's like a, you know, germinating for a year isn't bad. Yeah. And certainly to get an entire script to completion of that days. level yeah yeah is, yeah is a phenomenal feat on yellow notepads or something i think yeah is the, the well, legend he, yeah that's right um it, it's a film starring james spader and he basically plays like an impotent guy but he he's really interested in um uh, seeing women confess their sexual fantasies to him on videotape and he videotapes them and so it's a very psychological thriller despite the title there's nothing explicit about the movie at all you're watching it you're probably expecting to see those sort of images you get so bored <laughs> sex is the first word isn't it exactly so yeah sex sells. and i love what he says in the commentary um despite the title is pretty much no um like he says um rather than unsettle the audiences with images he wanted to unsettle them with the uh, with ideas so that's um the idea of it and uh yeah so but the film was such a huge success upon release uh, it just got so much uh, praise by critics. It won the Palm Door. I think he's the youngest guy to win that award. 26. 26 years old. And this was the start of a... Like, watching this film, you can see that whoever made this is intelligent. He's got a lot of um, ideas that he wants to explore. The craftsmanship involved is pretty good considering the budget. And he gets great performances out of all the actors. Very intelligent movie. And this film, um, particularly by hailed by um, Peter Biskind, who released the book um, Down and Dirty Pictures, uh, he pretty much crowns him as the guy who started the independent movement that pretty much defined the 90s with Kevin Smith, uh, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. He's the godfather really who, bro- who smashed all the doors open and said, hey, here's an independent film. You can do it without the you know studio. So it's a really important film for the um the 90s and a very important very great film for steven for Sundberg to start off with and then he bombed for what me and dave are going to get into for the next three or four <laughs> well, yeah the um the impact of this one he reached such heights it was such that like it was in pop culture there's a list on wikipedia of all the um episodes of tv shows that have been titled some variation of sex lies and video yeah it became part of the vocabulary didn't yeah. it the, the title <laughs> yeah and i mean his people still hadn't seen it they'd heard of it you know and it's interesting too because videotape as times have changed you know having this vhs kind of tape thing it really captures 1989 yeah you know and this sort of 
moment in time it's very interesting it's a very solid movie um very very different from his other body body of um work but a lot of the themes he's pretty much replicated or came up in his later work definitely Mm. yeah yeah it's it's obviously it's years and years ago but um I love it on the audio commentary they're saying uh, if the film was made now you couldn't do this storyline because we have Viagra now so it's like well that problem's out the window there you go yeah it was fantastic Um, 1991 two years later Kafka came out yeah and that's an interesting film it's kind of a biopic piece on the famous existential um, Austrian writer Franz Kafka it twists and distorts the narrative of the film with elements from his own novels such as The Castle and The Trial I don't know if anyone's read those it's fantastic books and you're not sure if the events that's occurring in um, in the movie is part of the, the main character's own nightmare the main character's played by oh my gosh I can't believe I'm forgetting his name uh, famous actor from Dead Ringers um, he, he was the main star in Naked Lunch oh my gosh I can't believe I'm f- forgetting his name but he's a famous actor and it's interesting because he had Alec Guinness in this film as well so I can't imagine a young man just you know I guess he won the Palm Door so he's got a bit of confidence but directing such a grand actor like Alec Guinness you know jeez <laughs> maybe uh, winning the Palm Door is like you have to have one to direct Alec yeah. Guinness or something <laughs> and um, yeah like uh, it bombed at the box office it bombed <clears throat> critically um but it since has gone on like people are comparing it to terry gilliam's brazil they're comparing it to especially david cronenberg's naked lunch um in the uh, early 90s uh he's now currently reworking on another cut of the film i think all in german so i don't know how that's going to go and it's going to be released in blu-ray he was talking about that like as he was working on behind the candelabra which is his last film so it's interesting he's got another cut of that coming i thought the film was brilliant it's definitely not for everyone it's a lot of dark comedy in it bit highbrow because you have to sort of uh, when i say highbrow you have to know franz kafka you have to read the trial and the castle just to get an idea of some of the subtle jokes on especially the metamorphosis with the cockroach and everything like that but i I thought it was a brilliant film but i can definitely see how it failed it was just so ambitious and yeah very retro we should probably mention at this point um steven soderbergh has a philosophy of one for them one for me yeah you know Uh, you got to think that sex lies and videotape was the one for him yeah it was his idea so it was this one no it was definitely for him, for him. <laughs> yeah it was definitely artistic so he was still developing this uh theory of the one for them absolutely yeah yeah i think he's just trying to um find out who he is as a filmmaker and stuff like that but i thought it was a brilliant film i thought it was really good very bizarre film um but uh, i was really blown away with it just shocked to hear it was so critically destroyed but now it's gone on to be considered a classic of the 90s yeah it's interesting i wonder if most films made by great directors you know the early films become classics yeah yeah you know based on the fact that they got better later yeah you know? so it's like seeing them developing their style who's the bad guy in die hard with a vengeance the main bad guy in that do you remember that the um, third one which one was alan rickman in that was the first one the yeah. second one was the airplane um the airport and then the third one they're in new york with a bomb running around and there's a german guy holding everyone yeah well that's the main actor in fact (laughs) sorry for not remembering it i can't believe i'm getting a blank but he's he's actually one of my favorite actors (laughs) i hope you apologize to him over twitter or something (laughs) i can't remember either no that's right um 1993 rolled along and so did king of the hill which was uh set in 1933 and starring a young jesse bradford who went on to do Swim Fan, among other things. Is that the Grey's Anatomy chick? Uh, 
Catherine Heigl's the Grey's Anatomy chick. Oh, okay. She's in it as well. Oh, she's, she, yeah, she's yeah, a was... classmate of, oh, okay. uh, of his. Also, Adrian Brody was kind of a street smart guide for him. Uh, this one was written and directed by Steven Soderbergh, and having a Depression-era film with a child star is a really interesting kind of, you know, um, film to make because, look, his um, father leaves... His mother gets locked up. He very much becomes independent at a very young age. His brother's sent away to live with a family who um, will provide for him. But during the Depression, you know, everyone's scrapping for everything they can get. So he uh, gets given some money. There's some arrangement made between a diner owner and the father. And when he goes down there, there's no such arrangement. And he has to buy 20 dinner rolls that that's the food he has, you know. He keeps coming up with kind of get-rich-quick kind of schemes... Um, he wants to breed canaries at one point and, you know, males and females, some, one's valuable, one isn't, you know, his plans keep getting foiled. Um, they break into, you know, uh, other houses and like loot and look, Adrian Brody's kind of a bad example, you know, for him, but being street smart helps him become more street smart. Especially considering the times, I guess. There's a particular, yeah, well shot scene where, um, Aaron, who's the main child star played by Jesse Bradford, as behind the wheel of a car and he can't reach the brakes, you know? And I think that was really well shot by Soderbergh. I think writing and directing this, you know, he's had to sort of come up with his style on the spot sort of thing. And um, it's sort of very well regarded, this film. It's very solid. Yeah. Um, I think it flails a little bit three quarters of the way through. The middle is a bit long. And so it's a bit tough because it is and you know it's a depression era film but it, it is kind of you're just waiting for him to kind of crawl out of this hole and you're watching this kid and because it's a kid i think you've got a lot more empathy for him and um you're watching him kind of suffer and starve and like not catch any breaks you know uh literally can't reach the breaks <laughs> um everyone's abandoned him he's very likable you know and he's put in this horrible situation and i think Jesse Bradford comes off really well as like a likable kid. You know, it's clear that the progression in his career that he's, you know, sort of got that likable. Mm-hmm. I think we did um, Speedway Junkie, yeah. which he's in. It's on our YouTube series. Yep. Um, yeah, look, he keeps hitting walls. He has to be crafty and he has to make money. And it's uh, it's it's very interesting, I thought, um, as a film. You've recently seen it, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, I thought, as you said, it was really hard to watch when he was starving. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got, like, uh, I guess something's wrong with his stomach because the poor guy hasn't had any protein or anything. And it's just like, oh, the poor kid. Mm-hmm. I hope he gets something to eat, you know. Um, I thought, from what I read, the critics really liked it, the American critics. Yeah, highly the, regarded. Yeah, on the audio commentary for Sex Lies, he goes, he got destroyed at Cannes and everything. He goes, people wow. hated me for it. And I was like... Really? From what I read, people like it. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. He must have had a different experience upon release. You Could know, have been the French. <laughs> the French don't like depression in her films. It's not like sex lies. We do not like it. Um, but... Yeah. Where is the cheating? Or, <laughs> or it could be a case where further down the track it became a classic or something like that. But bringing up the whoever was doing the audio commentary with him, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, um, brought that up and it sounded like a sore point. Uh, you know, King of the Hill. I was like, really? I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I, I got the feeling like it was something he was quite proud of. 
that um, when Soderbergh finished that, he would have thought this is a more grown-up film, you know, yeah. like an achievement that he had done in directing. And, and maybe if it wasn't received quite as well or it didn't make as much money... Uh, yeah, left that, yeah mental, yeah, mental scar sort of thing. The King and I... <laughs> King of the Hill, yeah. Oh, King of the Hill, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which led him two years later, and this is very much a pattern of two years apart, 1995 underneath well i saw that i thought it was a straight to video movie i just had this old vhs and i'll put it in oh sodenberg and i was watching it like i didn't realize till i saw the ending credits sodenberg directing it um it's a noir film starring sex lies and videotape star peter gallagher and it was a very solid noir thriller about an armored car robbery apparently it's a remake i haven't seen the original uh, it's a very dark and slow-paced movie. I think Sonnenberg was just exploring how far he could take that sort of pacing. Um, and the mood and lighting is very, like, with a lot of dark blues and stuff like that. It's like a precursor to Out of Sight. Like, that sort of style with the blues and stuff like that. It's solid, but it feels so made for TV. And I'm nothing against Sodenberg's craftsmanship. It's all there, but it's not a great movie. Just solid, you know. Just So is it commercial at all? Like, would it be able to be um, no, received well by audiences? Does it just feel like... That's a good question. It feels like a made-for-TV movie, and people go, yeah, you know, like that. It, it forgettable. Yeah, it's very forgettable. Wow, it's very unfortunate. For a Sodenberg movie, it's very solid. Like, very good acting, very solid very i love the mood of it so slow and lynchian to to a certain extent but not great not exciting or anything like that but i love the visual style of it. it's interesting peter gallagher um the lead i can only ever see him these days as sandy from the oc the oc <laughs> you know like every- he's definitely got that soapy bold the beautiful look you know? yeah he looks a little bit like ridge forester you know he's he's uh he's really defined the OC, you know, like <laughs> Sandy, uh, Seth's dad. You guys all know him from the OC if you're listening to this. <laughs> Probably more than you'll know him from underneath and yeah. Sex Lies. Um, 1996, just a year later, Grey's Anatomy Grey's, with, with yeah. an A. With uh, Spalding Grey. Spalding Grey. <laughs> uh, it's an 80 minute film with theatre actor Spalding Grey giving a monologue about his experience of trying to find an alternative remedy for an eye operation uh, to remo- remove, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, macular pucker it's a rare eye condition now it's literally a, a, a film adaptation to Grey's theatre performance of, uh, but it's done with heavy experimentation in fact on the DVD the Criterion release of this uh, Sodomick says um, that he wanted to go back to the independent style of filmmaking where he had a huge amount of freedom and could experiment more um, I love his comment at the end of the documentary on the Criterion DVD he says it's about a guy who's afraid to get a scalpel stuck in his eye I get it <laughs> it's literally like you're watching a theater performance but with filmmaking techniques like if he's talking about um i don't know uh, out an exterior shot like um uh, projection will come up of outside with birds and stuff like that and there's his shadow walking and weird stuff like that but it, it's fascinating just not sonic you want to pay like what i paid for the criterion disc <laughs> so i have to get it on ebay <laughs> would you say it's quite experimental it's then? very experimental yeah mm. yeah spalding gray is fascinating like he, he doesn't need film at all like he was in uh king of the king of the hill um he could just make his living just doing theater performance i'm sure he's a king at that area particularly that monologue style where he's like telling you a story but it goes on for like 60 70 minutes yeah it's fascinating Leading, leading us into the next experimental film he did, <laughs> which was Schizopolis in 1996. Now, just a quick recap. I saw this film on VHS and I picked it up for $2. 
um, it was at my local video store and I saw it sitting there and I thought Steven Soderbergh's not an actor what's he doing on the cover <laughs> of this film um, <clears throat> I'd never heard of it before it's many years ago and I picked it up took the VHS home and started watching it without reading the back of the box you know just no concept of what I was about to see uh, now what this film is is three acts of craziness um, <clears throat> it begins with no titles it ends with no credits um, Steven Soderbergh comes out at the beginning of this film and starts talking to the audience asking them to turn off their phones that sort of business and you know what you're about to see is blah 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 you know like a little introduction and then three acts which all feature Steven Soderbergh the first act um, he's walking around to people saying things like generic greeting and they're saying generic greeting returned and you know just like bizarre dialogue uh, there's monologues in this film there's kind of voiceover kind of narration that's black and white it's um, extremely experimental and there's elements of things going on like there's a bug catcher in a car who's right. like driving around um, he features far more prominently than you would think <laughs> um, and it, at the end of the first act he finds out his wife is cheating on him with him another version of Steven Soderbergh who uh, has a different name played by Steven Soderbergh so she's cheating on but the wife is played by somebody else yeah the okay, wife the wife is. isn't yeah. Steven Soderbergh okay, yeah sorry no. Yeah. No, no. Um, it's bizarre and hard to explain what this is um, the most experimental thing I think he's ever done because of the way it is uh, yeah, presented sounds the dialogue yeah. um, just like uh, wow um, <laughs> look, he's, uh, he ends the film I'll just get into that with um, himself coming out to ask if there are any questions and he says things like yes no and just answers questions that aren't actually being asked you know? oh, really? like he says something about a turkey sub or like a veggie wheat on toast or something like what his favorite sandwich might be or you know he he spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars on this experiment and feels like the kind of thing it's box office was allegedly 10k it made ten thousand dollars so a massive flop because this is completely not marketable at all. And how much way. was it made for? 250 grand. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So it's dubbed a comedy, but its comedy is in how quirky and odd it is. Um, yeah, look, I'd encourage you to watch a trailer of this on YouTube. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's, it's really bizarre. And the third part, I think, is, um, you know, her cheating on him with him you know like both being played by Steven Soderbergh it's like she can't be with one version of him but she can be with another version of him it's like she's cheating on her husband yeah. with exactly the same man kind of thing with a different name and it's just like obviously been a few years since I've seen it on VHS and uh, in the interim I have watched selected parts of it again just to see you know how weird it is but it's the most experimental thing as I said Steven Soderbergh's ever done the least marketable thing he's ever done which makes it perfect for him to do Out of Sight next <laughs> which 
you know, is one of the more marketable films he's ever done. And yeah. Lloyd, you requested this one. Oh, personally. yeah. Oh, well, only because of Jennifer Lopez. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's all right, Lloyd. People can know. It's 75 episodes in. You, you like Jennifer <laughs> Lopez. You tape Made in Manhattan every time it's on. Oh, not, not that bad. <laughs> not that bad. Um, well, this is the first film that started Soderbergh's incredible hot streak in Hollywood. It's an adaptation of Elmore Leonard's crime story of the same name, Out of Sight. Now, despite his unsuccessful streak, commercially and critically... You've got to say that, like, 89, he's known for Sex Lies video. Yeah, type. and automatically he's like the Orson, Orson Welles of this generation. And they're all know? waiting to see what he does next. So, of course, Bomb. he does yeah. wrong steps everywhere, Yeah, he? bombs and bombs and bombs. We're coming to the late 90s now. Everyone thinks... You know, that's it. At least he didn't make a sequel to Sex, Lies and Videotape. Because <laughs> that would have been a desperate move. Yeah. Oh and I'm gosh. sure somebody suggested it at some point. <laughs> somebody went, what happens to these characters next? You Come know? on, Stephen. But Viagra is around. <laughs> <laughs> now, he was given the opportunity, this is what he says in an interview, to direct Out of Sight because he's a really nice guy. The producers just liked him. And despite his um, huge amount of flops... There was this great script by Alma Leonard that came around. Um, uh, you know, George Clooney wasn't a huge actor at the time, but he was still a name. Je- He'd done ER. Yep, so. Jennifer Lopez is on her way up, you know, with a music career. You know, she'd been acting a long time, like with um, Money Train and stuff like that. But this was the rise of Jennifer Lopez's era of the late 90s. And so he was given the project because the producers liked him. No, he's a good guy. Give it a go. He's a solid dude. So he was given the opportunity to direct out of sight. Um, and the film made Jennifer Lopez legitimate in Hollywood. Some say it's her only good performance. I don't agree with that. The story is brilliant. The sense of humor is fantastic. But it's all about the riveting chemistry between the two leads, Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney. The images of them together um, became the poster child for their career. Like quite often, you'll you know you'll see a little excerpt of her undressing, and then Gen- um, George Clooney with it without a shirt. Just smiling at her as they get ready to get onto bed it became a poster child for their whole career and it just you know really helped catapult their careers i thought it made george clooney more legitimate because he'd only done er yeah that's right and i think from dust till dawn but that was you know surprisingly a small film a very small action film kind of a horror yeah Yeah, exactly um I, i love like um the film wasn't a box office hit at all um, it was solid, but it wasn't great. But it was such a critical success, and it launched his two careers. This is the beginning of his huge hot streak, Steven Soderbergh. Everyone talked about how great working with him was and everything like that. Personally, I love the movie. Jennifer, particularly Jennifer Lopez's character, I think she was perfect for the part. She plays this tough Latin girl, and my favorite scene of the movie is when she's. Um, she's a detective, she's a cop, but she goes into this place, a really tough place, um, just asking questions. There's this really mean boxer there, and he's like you're getting close to you know, to him attacking her. And as he goes to grab her, she pulls out a baton and whacks him a few times. Oh, but just how slick the scene is done, it was fantastic. Great sense of humor, great intelligent story that Elmer Leonard dialogue, so you can't go wrong with that. And I love the coloring of that film, just the blues and everything like that. Tones? Yeah, the tones of it, um, the pacing of 
of it and just how he threads all the stories remarkable movies probably probably my favorite one of my favorites of Sonnenberg's body of work that's interesting yeah <laughs> so these other good j-lo performances you talked about um which which do you think she did well in just to quickly out track. of her whole body of work yeah because some people say out of sight is her only good performance oh geez well what, uh, do you disagree this with is why i love jennifer lopez in the late 90s was because of uh, three films out of sight u-turn and the cell and they were all fantastic movies but because she became such a household name after those films then that's when she could choose the movie she wanted to do and you get a lot of romantic comedies and stuff like that, and that's where she wanted to go and good on it like that's great for her but it's not the films that i wanted that the that's the reason i liked her you know i liked her playing those tough really mean she did a film called enough which was a really cool film but yeah yeah um where she takes revenge on a really horrible husband but it wasn't great but it's it, it, it given to any other like good director i reckon she could have done brilliant things with it yeah um it's interesting in an interview he said the only films he's entirely happy with sodenberg like completely happy doesn't want to doesn't think he made any mistakes is out of sight and the limey <laughs> we'll talk about the limey lloyd 1999 oh um, that's his next film that's, that's right next one. perfect segue <laughs> uh, the limey is a crime film starring terence stamp um, australians all know him from priscilla queen of the desert and, and written by lem dobbs it is made in the same vein as british crime films of the 60s and 70s such as get carter and it's about an extremely violent and dangerous Englishman played by Terence Stamp going to Los Angeles trying to find the man responsible for the death of his daughter. Um, it's pretty interesting. It's a really simple movie. Um, Sodenberg here experiments a little bit with the narrative, dare I say Tarantino-esque, because it flips a bit back and forth. Now, this is the big thing about this movie. Now, it's a solid action movie. I love it. Solid revenge tale. But on the DVD of this, it's infamous because the audio commentary between the writer Lem Dobbs and Steven Sodenberg, Lem Dobbs was not a fan of the changes Sodenberg made to the script and felt the pacing. A lot of the scenes were too awkward and experimental. And he He's like paying out almost like every scene. Oh, why'd you do this? What? And there's one point where Sodenberg goes, um, well, why don't you try directing? You know, or something like that. He goes, no, nah, I like getting up in my own time. And just go, I didn't think it was as heated as people said. Like people in reviews go, oh, have you heard that, in that audio commentary? That got really um, out of command. I didn't think it was that crazy, but Lem Dobbs just has no fear of Steven Soderbergh. He just tells it like it is. He goes, you know, you know, from a film going perspective, yeah, I'd say this is an okay film, but as a film buff as I am, I don't like this at all. You know, he's just like, what are you saying? <laughs> um, it was made for $9 million and only grossed $3 million. Um, Unfortunate failure. Yeah, it was a financial failure, but it was still a critical success. So it's kind of still a hot streak because everyone's talking about it, like a big buzz. Oh, have you seen The Limey? It's pretty interesting, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Terrence Stamp is a really interesting actor. Every time he pops up, sort of very much got a presence on screen as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not only in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> well, I'm just saying Australians know him from that. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. Yeah. Um, the year 2000 brought about Aaron Brockovich, um, as well as Traffic. But Aaron Brockovich was uh, the most successful film um, Steven Soderbergh probably has made in the entire run of his films. Uh, it won him the Best Director. Uh, it won Julia Roberts Best Actress which a lot of people didn't think could happen before Aaron Brockovich, you know, she was like uh, the pretty woman and, you know, um, these romantic comedies. It's still a best film to date. Probably, yeah. Um, well, Julia Roberts has obviously taken a break from um, acting to some degree because she's had twins and 
I think the last thing she was in was that Mirror Mirror or um, whichever one she was in. Was yeah, that? one of those, yeah. One of those two. Yeah. I think it was Mirror Mirror, but yeah. I'm not 100% sure because we didn't watch that one. <laughs> um, of course, it's a good time to mention that you guys can put any requests forward for the <laughs> podcast uh, for movies you'd like us to watch. Schizopolis is looking like one that we might have to do. Um, and you can put the hashtag PMIYC for Podme if you can uh, on Twitter and we'll probably be checking that from time to time. So Aaron Brockovich, for those of you who've never seen it, despite it playing twice a year on every uh, other network that buys the rights to it, is about um, Aaron Brockovich, title character, who uh, is actually in the film as a waitress who's uh, credited as Julia R. So it's as if they've swapped identities kind of, uh, <laughs> for the purposes of the film. She, um, <clears throat> she works a legal case where the um, water around a certain town is full of um, chemicals which causes people to get sick, varying degrees, and um, they're looking for compensation from the company that's basically responsible. And it's a a true story, and they get $333 million from this company, and it's a massive lawsuit. And um, obviously the performance of the gutsy kind of uh, Julia Roberts, you know, in a tough woman role, they're always complaining, um, females in Hollywood, how there aren't enough roles and how they're all fighting for these you know big roles and yeah. uh, amongst themselves i mean there's a certain age group that female characters seem to be written for and i'm betting a lot of people were fighting to be aaron brockovich because, oh yeah you know i mean this got a lot of heat it was really well shot it was and it was based on a true story which added to it yeah exactly and a very quotable film too just you know they're called boobs ed and it's <laughs> like um basically People love this film. Aaron Eckhart plays uh, her biker boyfriend, who uh, is almost unrecognisable at times in the film. But um, he's he ha- two faced from Batman. <laughs> exactly, he hadn't quite popped yet um, as an actor. I love him in uh, Thank You for Smoking. I think he's great in that mm-hmm. film as well. Um, and one of the upcoming films we were looking forward to was I Frankenstein next year, which um, oh, he's in that. He's cool. Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. So. Um, Look, I think he's doing very well, but that was what sort of catapulted him into the spotlight. Um, obviously, her winning a Best Actress Oscar, you know, made her able to command $20 million a movie or whatever she, you know, wound up getting. Um, hugely successful. And especially, I find whenever a film is Oscar nominated, I think um, one of the examples this year is going to be uh, Matthew McConaughey. is going to be in... Um, this uh, AIDS movie and um, pretty much I think when that is Oscar nominated and I'm assuming it will be based on the performances Mm. by himself and Jared Leto um, then heaps of people go and watch this you know the screeners go out and everyone starts talking about the films that might win acting Oscars you know best picture Oscars and like the heat that the Oscars provide made Aaron Brockovich so successful you know it's going to play forever in syndication you know it's dvd sales um there's something as well about because she's a mother something as well about a mother you know raising kids and having a job it's like the woman who can have it all kind of thing and like erin brockovich has become a role model you know uh taking on the corporation there's so many elements of this and once again it's a true story exactly it's so well yeah they yeah. work themselves into such a good position exactly and i think this was you know um hard for Soderbergh to pass up because as well um 
telling a true story is something that Soderbergh continues to do. We're going to get to Shea and we're going to get to, you know, Magic Mike, which yeah. technically is a true story too, you know, <laughs> um, of Channing Tatum. But Aaron Brockovich, the year 2000, reset his career in a way. Yeah. Um, out of sight, obviously, was... Critical, the, yeah. Yep, but critical. wasn't the box office breakthrough this no. was. This was the crowning, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, his best director Oscar you know <laughs> and this is the only year because we're about to get into traffic um where he's nominated for two mm. um uh two times for directing um traffic and Aaron Brockovich which is hasn't been done since Michael Curtiz and I don't know the year but yeah pretty interesting I actually only watched that film recently and I avoided it for a long time because I thought it was one of those feel-good movies I was so blown away I love the humanizing factor of that movie like there's a scene where she's just driving the car and she goes oh could you keep me awake and he's telling oh like Aaron Eckhart telling her about oh well you missed a big thing because your daughter um just said her first word said ball and she Mm. just starts tearing at the eyes and then we fade to black and the conversation's still going on as we're fading to black. And it's so powerful, those moments. You know how much, just from that conversation, you know how much the job means to her and what she's losing from the job. She's losing the relationship with the children, with the guy. She's missing out on these great moments at home. Brilliant movie. One thing Soderbergh does in his directing style is the way he finishes and starts different scenes, the transitions. Often he'll have a voiceover come in before a scene is finished so that we're already in the next scene before we know it yeah you know and when he kind of fades stuff out like that just it's very thought-provoking the way he does it um the other thing i notice he does all the time is he seems to tilt the camera upwards you get a lot more ceiling than floor and often i think if you got a static kind of flat shot of a room then it would just look like everyone else's films yeah and the way he tilts it up like that so you get more roof it's just something more interesting yeah. about it, you know? And it is a signature shot that I've seen repeated in all these films. Wow, you know, like, I never noticed that, yeah. Yeah, just like having just the framing of his shots, I suppose. And he does a lot of his own director of photography work. Obviously, he uses a lot of aliases. Yeah. I mean, that's obvious to us, but for the <laughs> listeners, he edits under a female uh, pseudonym as well as um, does camera under aliases yeah so yeah i'll get into that with traffic yeah yeah well straight into it <laughs> right into traffic it. <laughs> which as well he was oscar nominated for that's right well this is the film that started sodenberg as his own cinematographer um from what i can see from his filmography uh his it's under the pseudonym peter andrews and a lot of people say that this is his masterpiece um the film is about a drug trade about the drug trade in america going via mexico and it explores three storylines between the political the authority and the personal um what i love about this film is the human emphasis there is the human aspect of the drug trade machinery like it goes in like michael douglas is one of the senators there and he might appear as this political suit but underneath that all he's having problems at home the daughter's onto drugs and stuff so it takes away the veil and really explores that human aspect um you're really thrown into each character's lives and how the system affects them um what's even more remarkable is how much Sodenberg is in control of every aspect like you just told me he edits his own films i completely forgot about that and he shoots it i've researched this guy like i've looked up interviews i've read and i cannot find anything where he talks about photography or editing like he mentions it a little bit like once um computers advance like he he, i know now he with his last five or six films 
he sh- the moment he finishes the day shooting, he's editing that night, and it helps him. He goes, oh, that helps so much. Kevin Smith does exactly the same thing. Oh, so he edits as they're going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And by the rap party, he has a first cut of the film <sighs> to show the cast. Like, yeah, and he only mentions that. When did this? I want to know when this began. Again, what programs he was using, <laughs> the photography. How did he get into it? I, I know nothing of that. All I know is traffic. That's his first film he's done under that pseudonym, as Dave said. How did he get that good? Because Traffic is amazing. It's got three different styles. When it's the corporate with Michael Douglas story, it's like this cold blue Washington. When it gets to Mexico, it's this handheld gritty film look. And I can't remember the third part. I think the... Yeah, with Catherine Zeta-Jones, it's like this vibrant, wealthy world that's slowly deteriorating. Catherine Zeta-Jones has got to fight to maintain it. Um, It is so brilliant. I don't know how... Like, Aaron Brockovich, yeah, it's great, but how did he jumpstart this far, you know? <laughs> I mean, the amount of films we've already mentioned, you yeah. must assume that as it went, he was learning oh, yeah. on the job. Yeah. You know? But he must um, be such a gearhead to know the film and to know the editing. I mean, Just, oh. through osmosis and, like, the way that you're exposed to this all the time, you're going to start to glean things. And, yeah, I think it's probably... He's obviously interested, you know. And he's not one of those lazy... Oh, I don't want to say directors are lazy, but he just wants to get into it, you know. Just, oh, yeah, the editor will take care of that. Well, no, i got to take it. You know? This way you don't have to rely on other people. I mean, I think it's taking ownership as well. I mentioned Kevin Smith as well. Um, Robert Rodriguez both edits and scores his own work. Yes. And I think, obviously, you know, this is part of... They've all come out through the same generation of yeah. filmmakers and it's interesting that they all have this kind of way of uh i guess taking ownership of all the elements of the film the um, only thing um he doesn't do is write i think he's only written a couple of geez i should go back in his body of work that he's written but um he said on an interview that writing is the worst job in the world <laughs> well he got off what we've already mentioned he got um sex lies and videotape done in eight days he wrote in king of the hill um, Schizopolis is written by him, even though it's on the credits. <laughs> it actually says they started shooting without a script. Okay, and like, yeah. And the poster and the cover say something about the film is based on half-remembered dreams and not well-thought-out ideas or something. You know, it's like... I, I imagine once you get Aaron Brockovich done and Traffic done, you're just picking up scripts <laughs> that you like, you know? You've and got writers knocking at your door. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to write, yeah. do you, at this point? So, Ted Griffin is the writer of Ocean's Eleven, which he got to do in 2001. Um, it is a slick, smart script. Um, you've seen this one? I've seen Ocean's Eleven and I really enjoyed it. I watched it at the movies, yeah. Yeah, look, I watched it 2001 at the movies. I worked at the movies. So, um, two years into working in the movies and this was the film that just popped for me. And became one of those ones that I watched a bunch of times at the movies because wow. I, because I could yeah because I watch it for free. Um, it became the movie that me and friends of mine, including Pete, my best man, um, would quote at each other. You know, we would say, uh, "You think we need one more? Okay, I'll get one more." About you know other things in life, we would say. Um, Did you rehearse that? Yeah, <laughs> felt like I felt like uh, you rehearsed that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we would. We would say things like slightly more complicated than that. Like when somebody would say that, you know, we would quote this film. Obviously, Ted Griffin, the writer responsible for some of those quotes. But this brought me to watch the Rat Pack original, you know, which for those of you who haven't seen it, it ends very differently than the 2001 film um, Ocean's Eleven, which... 
For those who are not aware of the story, um, George Clooney and Brad Pitt's characters uh, rob, look to rob a casino, which is actually a vault, which feeds three casinos worth of money that will be um, full of the most money on this fight night, this boxing fight night. Um, they're going to break in, but what do you guys got against Terry Benedict? He's the guy who's also stolen uh, George Clooney's girlfriend, played by Julia Roberts. Obviously, the connection is Erin Brockovich. Um, as well, her name is uh, Tess in the film. Uh, my wife's name is Tess, and I get lots of quotes in that <laughs> cool. way too. Yeah, you know, um, just like the Matt Damon following a scene, and he says, uh, "This is the highlight of my day." You know, sometimes I say that to my wife, and like still quoting this film from you know more than a decade ago how does it compare to the original look the original um i will spoil it for those of you who are thinking of watching it maybe fast forward a couple of minutes and the rat yeah. pack refers to frank sinatra dean martin um yeah, sammy davis jr yeah. um, the big stars of the time which mm. is exactly what oceans 11 has done uh in the original they don't get away with it um they get the money and uh, they rob the casino. Obviously, the difficulty is that you're in the middle of Las Vegas and they find a clever way in the new film to uh, get away with it when they're dressed as SWAT team and they come in and steal the money. They don't ever take the money until, you know, after they've seemingly been robbed. But in the original, they get the money um, and they send some of it to the... Um, someone dies. Yeah. And the guy that dies, uh, they send money to his widow. And then the way they're going to get the money out is in the coffin with the guy's body um, when they're, you know, taking the body. But the wife requests cremation and their money is burned. Right. And then the last shot is like them all walking in kind of a reservoir dog's way down the street. Nobody's talking to anybody. They've lost all the money. The only money that came out of it was sent to the widow of the woman, you know, the woman whose uh, husband died in the in the heist. So after all this effort, it's just silently walking down the street and it's a different tone. But it's still a very fascinating film, you know, to watch. And I wouldn't have watched that, perhaps, if I hadn't seen Ocean's Eleven at the movies. And I mean, Rusty, played by Brad Pitt, very quotable character. He's always doing something cool. Um, He's playing cards in one scene with Topher Grace and a bunch of, like, celebrities, Joshua Jackson, you know. If you haven't seen this film, it's just a very enjoyable film that you're trying to guess how they're going to be able to do this heist. You know, and there's clues there. There's this slow zoom on the air freshener, which tells you that there's a second van. That's the SWAT team van, you know, that you're going to find out about in the ending of this film. Um, you know, Bernie Mac, the late Bernie Mac now, uh, crystallizes this great little performance as a, a dealer, you know. Yeah. Um, the guy who plays Livingston Dell, whose name escapes me at this time, <laughs> um, features in, like, many more of Soderbergh's films. Matt yeah. Damon went on to work with him seven times, yeah. as we're going to discuss. But it just is probably one of my favorite Soderbergh films, just maybe the most memorable. And most enjoyable as well. It's really fun. They managed to get an uplifting ending rather than having the, um, you know, obviously downer of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, but as well, there's stuff that's improvised in there and like scenes where at the end they're all in front of the fountain after the heist. Yeah. And um, you think they're all just standing there kind of watching it and they leave one by one and there's an order to that. He didn't pick it. The actors did. You know, they're all in front of this water thing. And he said to them, just leave when it feels appropriate for your character. And so one by one, they're sort of leaving. And like the older character sort of stays the longest soul because he's sort of soaking in this one last experience, you know, because he's 
reluctantly rejoined this gang and so forth. Casey Affleck gives a good performance with Scott Kahn. They're really kind of snappy brothers, yeah. you know, at each other. I mean, they're all such well-formed characters. And to have Andy Garcia, who we know from The Godfather, among other things, Godfather Part 3, um, as the villain, you want George Clooney to get the girl, too. He's Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, yeah. Tess. And uh, the thing about it is, Brad Pitt says... If this comes down to you having to choose between the money and the girl, which way are you going to go? And just remember, Tess does not split 11 ways. <laughs> you know? And then he has, he has to try and get both, you know? And he does it in a way that he gets arrested, he goes to prison, but they have got the money. And at the end of the movie, they're being watched by Andy Garcia's guys, you know? And she, you know... It's implied that maybe Brad Pitt's been hitting on her in the interim, you know, because when he gets in the car, yeah. um, she says, we need to find Rusty a girl. And then uh, <laughs> he goes, there's a women's prison down the road. <laughs> I feel, In a way, I feel like we could sit and do the entire script and there'd be so many lines that are just so quotable. And just like such an enjoyable experience. I remember it so fondly. Yeah, you speak of I, it really, yeah. I'm very much uh, like just so happy with the translation of that film. You know, um, and it spawned two sequels, and it created this titan group that Sodenberg worked with. Like he, because he's such a nice guy, and he's so he's backed up by incredible talent. Yeah. Um. You know, he just had this field of um, uh, Brad Pitt, uh, George Clooney, um, who were obviously huge stars at the time, and they all want to work with him. They'll they work with him for free. You know. <laughs> Exactly. And biggest of all, this movie made a lot of money. You Definitely. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, part of that is the cast. When you've got a massive uh, cast assembled, you know, it's hard to ignore. But then as well, it looks stylish. You know, the film has split screens and it's got just like colorful lights. It's got excellent dialogue. The trailer itself is, you know, I think the poster said uh, 11 guys, one girl, 150 million bucks or something like that. You know, just like breaking it down and saying it's a heist movie and you're trying to figure out the whole time how they're going to do this because um at the beginning uh the stakes are laid out for you you're basically told you're in the middle of the goddamn desert you know you can't get the money out of there you you would see in flashback and you know fantasy kind of sequence you, you get shown the previous attempts to rob las vegas casinos and it hasn't worked out you know what i mean people getting shot and and just going badly and you think they've got the numbers can 11 guys do it you know is that enough guys in all the different roles they've got to swap uniforms out you know there's one guy who is an acrobat you know yeah. and just it's it's fascinating to me because the characters are so well developed yeah. you know oceans 11 which i highly recommend yeah definitely that. that's fantastic well that was the commercial one mm. which led to the not so commercial <laughs> Again, full frontal. And that, that had a string of stars as well, didn't it? It did. Yeah. Brad Pitt featured. Yeah. Julia Roberts was in it. Obviously, the connection that they've worked together before. You got David Duchovny in that film as well. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, he, for those who don't want it spoiled, <laughs> uh, he receives a hand job in, in a scene. He's uh, getting a massage and he plays uh, somebody's boss. But it's a very interesting film. Uh, Catherine Keener, who I actually met in New York very randomly. Um, is in the film as well. Uh, it's sort of, you feel like elements of it are super independent. 
the and shot in digital as well. The yeah. Canon, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, X One or something. Yeah, I remember all of us going. Soderbergh shot a film on digital, and he edited on Final Cut. You know, Pro. That was like a big inspiration for us. We can do it. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think there's a lot of we can do it coming out of our Steven Soderbergh films. Yeah. Um, look, the film it's got multiple characters, and all of them going through their own experiences but the one storyline i think i'll focus on now is there's uh, one that's really glossily shot and it really stands out amongst the digital filmmaking and it is um uh, i think it's blair underwood is the actor sitting with julia roberts and they're saying things to each other and it sounds like ridiculous dialogue the most unnatural kind of um you know like he's received a letter from a secret admirer and he opens it and she's a reporter or a journalist who's interviewing him and he's a big famous actor who's now working with Brad Pitt who's playing himself um and she's interviewing him on the set of his movie you know um they're off kind of he runs off and does like an action scene with Brad Pitt and the dialogue is terrible and it feels like you know really staged and phony and stuff then after a bit they they start suddenly reacting and it's a film within a film you've been watching this you've been watching basically the final product of this film but what's happened is Soderbergh at one point with whoever he was writing with I can't recall yeah. but um, I did hear this that on the I think it was the audio commentary that at some stage they were like this sounds fake like it sounds like we're making this film up and then like at some point they went let's just make it a film and break down this wall and Julia Roberts walks off set and like takes out her wig and stuff and um, <laughs> Blair Underwood follows her and they act completely differently because now they're themselves. He was super confident in the film, but then he's all like, hey, you know, maybe you want to hang out later and like he's all awkward and stuff. Yeah. And it's this sudden transition that just makes it so fascinating. And is that part in digital? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that part's in digital. Um, there's a play within the digital kind of stuff as well. Um, about Hitler and so one of the characters has a Hitler mustache all the time <laughs> yeah. um, there's look it's it's very interesting and as well I think he did all those kind of independent things where he would have his actors um, he would video them there's these extra features on the DVD where he videos the actors and then just asks some questions and they have to answer as if they are that character and so it helped them formulate who they are and I think he had them help come up with these people mm. you know and that probably helped him write the script there was probably kind of a collaborative way of doing that you know and there's a lot of chances taken but they're taken because he can shoot on digital you know he probably had so much more footage than required and so many more things that got edited down you know but this was a unsuccessful movie financially wasn't straight it? to dvd yeah okay. um because of its experimental nature i mean this is one of those things where um I feel like some of these films are going to be studied in a film class kind of, you know, media studies class. But uh, this one probably won't be one of them just because it's uneven as a movie. Um, it's like he thought, if I get enough famous people, this will work. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, whereas perhaps the story wasn't completely there. There's, um, yeah, there's elements of good stuff. It's just not all the yeah. way there. Um I have seen it a couple of times, but... I'm, I'm surprised I never saw this movie because I heard so much about it and it was just a big thing for me 
during um, university because I was just like, wow, great director like Sonnenberg has made something with a digital camera that's so accessible. Like I can literally buy that camera at a store Mm -hmm. and then edit. I can get Final Cut Pro, you know, and Apple... Um, had this great whole website dedicated to all the equipment he used, what products he bought, you know, you could literally buy them at the a- Apple store. So it was just so accessible, you know, and I, Definitely. I never saw it. <laughs> and as well, 2002, I mean, we were trying to make little films and stuff at exactly, that time, yeah. you know, um, sort of went on to make shorts and, and things like that. But exactly, you're looking to these examples that... Hollywood, I guess, is providing. I mean, the Australian film industry, we don't have to get too much into it, but <laughs> there's sort of uh, less directors and certainly visionaries. Often in the Australian film industry, you see somebody make one film and then 10 years later make their second film, you know, because of funding reasons and availability. Yeah. And, and often people go to the US and make many more films and become like successful over there rather than here. Um, yeah, look, uh, obviously. Soderbergh, as we've mentioned, and the reason we're doing this podcast is because he's inspired us in some way. Yeah. You know, we recognize something in his films that across... The, we've probably been at a really crucial time in our lives, Yeah, you know, across his film of, uh, body of work. Uh, when he's released this, as we said, we're very into filmmaking in 2002, and he's making films with cameras we can get, yeah. like you say. So, yeah, uh, the experimental nature of... His film choices, I think, is something where we've gone, could we do that? Yeah. You know, how many people have watched Clerks, Kevin Smith's film, just to stick with the Sundance kind of model, and gone, could I make that if I had access to those things? Absolutely. Um, Perhaps not with the same script. I mean, that's Kevin Smith's experience. Um, Robert Rodriguez famously made... El Mariachi. For $8,000, wasn't it? Yeah, seven grand, yeah. Seven grand, okay. And so you think, I've got seven grand, or I could get seven grand. And then, I mean, there's obviously style, there's obviously script, but there's there's, uh, works out there that would inspire, you know what I mean? Um, For me, uh, I was watching Phone Booth. That was one of the things that inspired me. I know Joel Schumacher, you know, isn't perhaps the best director to cite here. Yeah. But the fact that it was made in one location in, you know, I think it was twelve or fourteen days. And he shot in chronology as well. Like yeah. that's literally how the script starts, he's shooting it as it starts like that to end. Yeah. Yeah. And when you sort of hear about stuff like that, you think, could I put together a tight enough kind of, you know, script and everything that, you know, you could do something like that. Um people get inspiration where they can find it, where they need it. You know what I mean? You could, if nobody else has ever done something how do you know how to do it? I guess, yeah. you know. Um, look, the next film Steven Soderbergh got his hands into was Solaris, which was 2002. Lloyd, do you love Solaris? I love Solaris. We did a whole podcast on it. We talk on and on about it. Um, episode 31 of Pod Me If You Can. You can go to our website and search it there. Um, and he's he did that film with... Um, oh, avatar director james cameron um as an a audio producer, commentary and he did an audio commentary with him i urge you guys to listen to that one but check out that episode we go on and on about solaris i actually think it's one of the best science fiction um films to date this is his only foray into science fiction and it is brilliant bear in mind it's a remake of a um of a tarkovsky film but it's really really good yeah as we mentioned yeah with george clooney yeah <laughs> so episode 31 some time ago for us but um it's all there you guys can download it at www.podmeifyoucan.com or through itunes yep um 2004 saw the first sequel 
for Soderbergh, which was Ocean's 12. I didn't see any of these sequels, mind you. <laughs> That's okay. Nothing I, against them. I just never got around to seeing them. Yeah. This one um, had more <laughs> Soderbergh style than Ocean's 11, which um, he stuck to a really you know slick Hollywood model. Um, they actually go to Europe. The film starts with Terry Benedict, played by um, Garcia, finding them finding out they took the money, basically busting in on their now great lifestyle, you know, and uh, George Clooney and co uh, basically have to do a heist to pay back the money to Terry Benedict because even though he got it all back because he had insurance, you know, the banks or whoever was insuring him gave him back the money. Uh, it's a personal thing. He wants them to also give him back the money or else I guess he'll kill them is the implication. Wow. So um, they, have to do, they don't have the money. Some of them have more and some of them have the exact same amount. Like, it's funny because each character, which was well-developed in the first film, one of them's like, I've got all that money. It's just sitting in an account somewhere. You know, like, he hasn't spent a cent of it. He lives his life exactly the same. <laughs> and there's other guys, like Brad Pitt's character, Rusty. He's invested in a bunch of motels. Uh, sorry, hotels. And so all his money is, you know, tied up in investments and stuff. So he doesn't have it all in hand. Um, it, they go through a little, like, roll call kind of scene where they're like how much have you got how much you got you know and everybody kind of has their reasons you know cool it's, it's kind of interesting to see in the years following the heist what they sort of made of themselves um so they go international it's european they go to amsterdam there's um uh basically a uh, like a fabergé egg kind of thing that they're looking to steal and uh vincent cassell who um is a famous french actor he um plays the night fox and he um, is trying to steal the same item that they're trying to steal. So their first heist they try and do, he beats them to the item. So so now it's like a rivalry. <laughs> so there's rival thieving going on, exactly. And uh, we also are introduced to um, a love interest for Brad Pitt's character in the first film, obviously, Julia Roberts and um, George Clooney get together by the end. But... The love interest for Brad Pitt is played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, who the connection is obviously Traffic, um, previously done by Soderbergh. And so uh, she's a big deal in 2004, you know. I mean, she's got uh, Entrapments come out in 99. Um, she's obviously in Traffic. Um, I can't think what else. I don't know when Zorro came out, but she's yeah. very popular at this time. And, um, yeah, the, the way it's shot and everything... Um, differed slightly people weren't happy with the way it ended um for oceans 12 because it was um <laughs> it was a bit of a cop-out and this is a problem with the script i can't recall if ted griffin did this script as well um but whereas you want them to steal it kind of fair and square they go and make a deal with the night fox played by vincent cassell and they say if you uh if we steal it uh something before you steal it then um, you basically pay back our debt to Terry Benedict for us, you know, because he's rich. He's stolen heaps of items. It's just about fun for him. He's just interested in being this kind of cat burglar, you know, and it's about sort of glory for him. Um, but before they even go and talk to him, they've already stolen the item. In flashbacks, you see that everything they do is like because uh, the Night Fox is watching them with security cameras in their factories and everything, and he thinks he's one step ahead of them. But before they even made the bet, they've already stolen the, uh -huh. the egg. Um, it's interesting, the couple of things that happen, Julia Roberts, because Tess looks like Julia Roberts a little bit, 
they have a scene where she, she's pretending to be Julia Roberts and uh, you know they're trying to keep her sort of half covered up and stuff <laughs> and Matt Damon has a much bigger part in this film than he did in Ocean's Eleven because obviously the Bourne movies come out and he's a bigger deal and so um, you know as a star they kind of get him to be more involved in the, the film and as well um, Catherine Zeta-Jones's father in the film uh, who if memory serves is played by Albert Finney but I can't 100% remember that um, he was a famous thief as well um, yeah. so in a way her and Brad Pitt have a lot more in common you know but she works for like Interpol or like somebody who um, is trying to basically capture these these thieves and you know she knows how the mind works of a thief because she's the daughter of a thief and things like that so whereas it was a departure from what they achieved in Ocean's Eleven it was solid enough that obviously we got a third film <laughs> was it a financial enough. success? Like, I, I believe it yeah, was yeah. Um, not as big yeah. because it got some critical reviews um, mostly about the whole flashbacky ending and and it was a little bit of a cop out I will admit um, it didn't have the same because it wasn't in Las Vegas as well like uh, I think we criticized the hangover films um we did the third one not long ago and the fact that they sort of just touch on vegas it feels like a different movie sure so this one having them go to europe it was probably partially to do with like tax reasons and things like that but um you get a whole bunch of different scenery you know it's a whole different vibe isn't it i mean the city las vegas is a character in the first film so you know you get europe as a character in the second film and it comes with a lot of subtitles, which I don't hate, but I'm guessing some audience members didn't enjoy. Um, it it just feels different. As well, I think he takes a lot more chances with his directing style. Yeah, There's a lot more handheld stuff. It's not as sleek. It uh, feels a little more like he's experimenting at times, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when you've got a really commercial franchise, that can hurt it. Yeah, people expected think, a certain flavor. Yeah, And I think it did a little bit certainly you know the reviews um which led him to the one for him because in 2005 bubble was released um which is a film set in a doll factory and shot in high def video so it was touted as an experimental film it was released simultaneously in movie theaters on uh cable satellite tv network and uh i believe was also available to uh download or stream right um yeah trying to break the mold of what's you know what's standard (laughs) yeah sorry the dvd was released a few days later i've got okay on uh january 31st so january 27 2006 it was released in theaters and stuff and dvd a few days later all non-actors all uh lines were improvised um which is obvious in some scenes they say things like i don't know as a response you know which can sort of slow down a scene when you're improvising i think the first rule is to say yes and (laughs) so you agree with what the last person said to keep things moving and you add something so that the scene continues and new details are are brought forward you know um so saying things like i don't know full stop shut down a scene you know what i mean um it's about a lonely older woman who has a kind of unnatural attachment to a younger man it is largely silent there are the dialogue that is improvised is sort of here and there and in between um they have very short exchanges with each other but she's kind of treats him as a as more than a friend she drives him to and from work 
um, they have a very repetitive score that it reflects the repetitive nature of their jobs. And because they work in a doll factory, there's this kind of, they're making the same dolls day in, day out with the same bubble heads, I guess, you know, and they're in their own little bubble in Ohio. This, this world is all they know. They can only save so much money. They got to pay rent. And it's just like a cycle for all these people in this area. Um, he has that trademark of showing everything in a room with a running voiceover before you sort of get to see the action, you know. He often does these shots of like static shots of like a room to establish your environment. Mm. He does a bit of that here as well. Um, again, those nice wide shots with ceilings, you know, there's all the sort of Soderbergh elements that you sort of see. Look, spoilers on this, 45 minutes into this film, there is a twist murder and uh, one character is killed and uh, it becomes a whodunit which you know it was made with uh, HDNet which was a production deal and from the DVD I've just taken a snippet from a Soderbergh interview we found this doll, ha doll factory in Ohio the whole idea though is to make films that are site specific so to come up with a basic story go to a town preferably a town you haven't seen in movies a lot build a story to fit into the town then cast local people and continue to build the story fusing their real lives with the premise and come up with something that is distinctive fascinating so w even though so they went to ohio yeah. they checked out locations and stuff they saw this doll factory or this factory and he kind of came up with this idea and then they cast these people based on locals I think they found her in, I think it was a KFC, like, drive through window. They went through and they were like, well, she's interesting. And they got to know these people. They have screen tests and stuff uh, on the DVD. Its budget was $1.6 And this was so much more money than they would have needed, I feel like. they. Um, um, the whodunit part, is that all um, experimental lines as well, improv? Well, I think the basic premise the plot is gets come up with yeah. by Soderbergh so at some point he has a murder you know brought into it um he knew that was going to happen um the thing about it is uh the actual who done it is a little bit hard to predict and the reason is that person sort of has a mental snap and doesn't know that they did it in a way oh, so that's like a cheat <laughs> well i mean they they by the end of it they come to terms with the fact that they've done it but because they're acting like they didn't do it yeah and they seem horrified that this has happened and things like that becomes this like yeah this it's unsettling because you think that person has done it and they could have not even ever registered mm. that they did it if, yeah. you know yeah um for spoilers the actual ending is <laughs> The, uh, the unnaturally obsessed woman kills a new girl that starts at the factory because it seems like her young boy, who's friends with her, I guess, who she drives home, starts getting attached to her, and um, then she basically kills her, you know, <laughs> which, you know, is kind of psychotic. Yeah. Um, but as well, it's like it's a small town story, so it's like this very uh, limited bubble i guess you know um, yeah fascinating i really want to check this out it's interesting and it's like, shot in digital uh hd uh, what did i say because it couldn't be the red hey, high def video okay yeah high def video yeah check it out yeah interesting um 
but as I said, it's largely silent and it has this repetitive score. So you you can see a lot of people liking that and being like, oh, this is really fascinating, and a lot of people being like, this is terrible <laughs> because just something happened already, you know, and like halfway through, it takes halfway through the film for the murder to happen, and you're yeah. just kind of waiting for something to happen. I think for that 45 minutes, you're getting to know these characters pretty quickly and going, all right, these people live in this kind of not-so-great place with these not-so-great jobs. And, you know, the long and short of it is that you're waiting for the murder, the inciting incident that creates an interesting story, but it just takes too long to get to that. Um, But that's kind of the beauty of what this was. I mean, going to a place and making it Ohio-specific, I think they're trying to... This was ideally going to be part of a whole series of, like in the production deal with um, HDNet, they were going to make a series of these films, each with different directors making different films in different places with locals and like improvised. And Sounds like, brilliant. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? I think this would have been the kind of thing that would have played out on like a movie channel as like specials and, and that sort of thing. But I think the experiment of releasing it in theatres and DVD and everything, because he saw that that's how people are going to get their films People want to watch it one way or another. This is to do with um, fighting piracy. This is to do with, you know, as many eyeballs seeing this film as possible. It's just that this film maybe wasn't ever going to be a huge film. Had he done this with Full Frontal or something with some name actors, it probably would have had a greater impact, you know, and maybe even... So on the basis this wasn't successful, on the basis that they canned the whole series, I guess... I mean, I don't actually know if they wound up making any more of them. Yeah. Um, but I have a strong suspicion that Soderbergh wasn't involved in any more of them, if there were any more. So this was his contractual obligation, I think, just doing Bubble. Um, yeah. Fascinating. It is a little bit. Uh, I've got a, a figure in the US, apparently it grossed $145,000, which was, for a, yeah, yeah. a $1.6 million budget, I mean, it's another failure. Yeah. But... We're not measuring Soderbergh by his failures no. today. This is not what the podcast is no, about. Yeah, no, not at all. Well, just get this clear, guys. We think he's absolutely brilliant. He's a genius. But just I, in terms of the audience reaction to his films. I don't think we would spend over an hour talking yeah. about it. <laughs> I love Soderbergh's movies. <laughs> if we weren't talking about failures, I'm not sure we would talk about The Good oh, German. Good German. 2006, Lloyd. Now, Soderbergh approached The Good German with the idea of what if Michael Curtiz could make a movie about post-World War II Germany without the censorship of his time. Um, You know, the censorship restrictions at his time. So it isn't like Casablanca. Like, I love Casablanca. Nothing wrong wrong against Casablanca. But if we can have swearing, if we can explore darker themes and stuff like that. And now Soderbergh said, it turned out like five people wanted to know the answer to that question. (laughs) I got to be smarter about the accessibility of an idea when compared to the resources required to execute the idea properly. I wouldn't make that mistake again. I wouldn't take that strange idea and spend 30 million dollars on it that would be stupid the good german i think is an incredibly intelligent film uh shodenberg shows mastery of the old um 
ways of cinema like there's a lot of use of rear projection the card which looks so retro to a modern it just looks so wrong <laughs> particularly as it's in black and white yeah um it's also really ugly like it shows the dehumanization of people in post-world war ii germany because it just opens up people trade you're just selling people off like women you're just selling them for sex and what's the actor who played spider-man in the toby first one toby Maguire, right plays this all-american kid you know he's a good kid has his american pie from a good family and he's obviously been posted in uh, Germany for a while and he's the most awful character like you meet him oh he's a good kid and there he is like he's got this German girlfriend uh, Kate Blanchett and he's just like oh do you want to sleep with her for a bit Come on, he's slapping her around it's so horrific the character you're just like what but the whole film it looks like a 1940s movie so it's like this weird awkward so I think it's very intelligent interesting story a huge failure as he said he would never make that mistake again um he goes there they lost more money he goes they lost about 30 million they probably lost even more i will he pretty much as i read out he said i'll never make that mistake ever again you know it's such a huge failure i liked it very intelligent not for everyone and i think its reception is um an example of how people felt about the movie but i thought it was good hmm. <laughs> fair enough <laughs> um lots of stars kate blanchard um george clooney toby Maguire, and others <laughs> to- toby Maguire has a very punchable face if you ask me <laughs> something about him i wished uh well in spider-man originally i mean they asked uh, jake gyllenhaal was one of the candidates obviously similar physique um but like Heath Ledger was asked as well to be Spider-Man at one point. I just feel like Tobey Maguire was the wrong. It doesn't feel like Spider-Man to me. <laughs> I don't know. There's something wrong about him. I don't know what it is. Ocean's 13 also had a lot of stars. 2007. This finishes the trilogy, yeah? Finishes yep. the trilogy. Um, look, one of them is uh, looking to invest in a new casino um in vegas again vegas becomes a character again it brings back to the roots of oceans 11 uh willie banks is um i believe it's willie banks is uh the new villain he um basically ruins this deal and takes the whole casino for himself and i think he calls it the bank or banks or something casino um the bank is he al pacino he's al pacino Pacino, yeah Yeah, uh sorry i didn't mention that right no you're right um and so because he ruins this deal for um saul saul pretty sure it's saul uh he um goes to hospital um he finds himself having some kind of heart attack and falls into a coma or something and they kind of um it's a revenge film because now they're going to ruin this new casino um because he muscled out their friend it's like about who they mess with you know kind of thing and um the way that they sort of rig machines and they uh it's gonna they're gonna have a soft opening you know and they're looking to bankrupt with everybody in the casino winning and uh then they're going to because after that people tend to lose their money again you know you're on a hot streak you keep playing you lose it all you know it's like you never won it in the first place and so then they're going to have um they're going to rig a device to make an earthquake and um (laughs) and basically have everyone evacuate the casino and with all their money you know and so they bankrupt the casino and before it sort of is ever very successful for al pacino's character 
And uh, Matt Damon gets a love interest in the pattern of the trilogy. You have George Clooney, then Brad Pitt, then Matt Damon getting a love interest. We also get to see Matt Damon's father, who was also a grifter. Um, and that's where Matt Damon learned his skills and so forth, being the son of, you know, this great grifter. And, like, you get the return of lots of characters. It's it's very much the the final piece. It's it's a fun film for them. You can tell that it's not work for the actors. And, and uh, it's good. Probably a lot of people consider it better than 12. But a lot of that probably is about the fact that it's similar to the first one in this Vegas... How would you rate one, two? Obviously, number one being the best. Yeah, I'd probably say thirteen, then twelve. But wow, but just because twelve is such a different, it's a departure. It's such a different film, and this sort of comes back to the old. Yeah, yeah. and it's more reminiscent of um, eleven. So it's a good trilogy to sit through. Not as great as Toy Story or Back to the Future or anything like that. I I think obviously the first one is the strongest, and therefore you watch the others if you like these characters, if you appreciated the sort of early films. Andy Garcia sticks around as a villain, you know, sort of, uh, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of deal, uh, by the third one, you know, cause he doesn't want this competition in a casino. So there's an element of him helping as well. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, so like they kind of, it's interesting, you know, to see where the characters sort of go. Um, it's great because this is his first working with Al Pacino as well towards Al Pacino's, I don't want to say Al Pacino's career is dead, but it's no. like, he's not going for the great grand roles anymore like he did we, we all appreciate Al Pacino we know he's great he can do whatever he wants now he can do Jack and Jill oh god uh, I, was about to, <laughs> I was about to mention Jack and Jill there's a scene in Jack and Jill where Adam Sandler dressed in drag as Jill uh, is playing stickball and she hits a ball and it knocks the head off the Oscar that um, oh. Al Pacino won for Send of a Woman you know it's implied that and then uh she he says oh i'm sure you have lots of those and then he goes you would think so but no you know just just the one kind of thing (laughs) and uh you know if you look up al pacino and you see all the films he was nominated for over the years it does seem like he would have another one you know scarface or uh yeah there's a few and son of a woman obviously the one he got it for but yeah he um he's collecting a paycheck in this but it's like it's like what they're doing with the expendables right at the moment where you've got this core cast and you have to bring in new talent to kind of revitalize this series they're doing it with fast and the furious as well by bringing in the rock or bringing in whomever um i think you know arnie's in the expendables now and like they were trying to get bruce willis but now it's going to be harrison ford and by having these injections of new sort of interesting characters and talent it is revitalizing these kind of films yeah so if you had the exact same cast as oceans 11 people would say, well, I've already seen that film. Now you're seeing the film, plus there's Al Pacino in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a new reason to kind of watch I've got to watch this trilogy. I never gave it much respect. Like, I liked Ocean's Eleven, but I just thought, oh, but I'm such a Soderbergh fan. It's just, I can't, I shouldn't be able to say that without having seen sure. Ocean's, the whole Ocean's trilogy, because it's such a huge portion of his life, you know? It is. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like if he had, um, if they'd worked on the script for 12 a little more, and uh, they would have had a much more commercial trilogy. But, I mean, you see these... I would have liked to have seen a prequel, you know, where they get less cast members. Obviously, Bernie Mac has since passed away. Yeah. Um, you know, you could do a kind of earlier version. In 12, they talk about how they were in Amsterdam before, 
Bernie Mac. So you could and, do a um, prequel on I see. Well, Bernie yeah. Mac was one of the characters. Um, oh, right. Bruce Willis, uh, Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt's character Rusty and Bernie Mac's character had a history in Amsterdam sort of thing. And, you know, he was like, uh, you know, don't tell Danny. Danny Ocean, Ocean's Eleven. Danny Ocean's obviously George Clooney's character. Um, there's this whole backstory to how they got to where they are now. There's a scene in Ocean's Eleven where George Clooney's out of prison at the beginning of the film and the reason he went to prison is because a heist went wrong. You know, oh, you can sort of see yeah. you can sort of see this whole world they'd sort of created beforehand and I think it would be interesting in some form to see the earlier days, like a young Oceans kind of Oceans five, Oceans Four, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of thing. And you could get younger actors to play the parts and, and sort of thing, but it feels like you know too crazy an idea you know you, <laughs> you wouldn't get the uh the nod of Soderbergh or or any of the the cast members it feels like son of the mask kind of thing <laughs> you know it's not gonna work yeah sure speaking of things that don't really work Lloyd 2008 Shay <laughs> you didn't like Shay I don't know that it worked that's what I'm saying <laughs> no well uh the reaction from the audiences yeah it didn't um so it's a two-parter part one part two too much script and you know film for one movie yeah too big a story perhaps too epic like it's uh his first venture into movie making shooting with the digital red camera uh it was an incredibly difficult film uh for Soderbergh to make the producers originally had Terrence Malick like signed on in the late 90s and he dropped out Soderbergh came on they spent a long time researching this film um they were going to make it as a six-part series for a tv uh, but it ended up being a two-part movie, just like Kill Bill. I personally love the movie. I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen, <laughs> like both of them. Uh, its greatest triumph is it makes you feel like you hung out with Shay Guevara for four hours. Like, I really felt like, oh, well, I, no, Shay. I'm with that. I, so. I hung out with him for four hours. I couldn't shake this film from my head for, like, a few months. Like, it just had a, a, a huge impact on me, um, particularly with, like how i guess how it was shot but it's so open like when castro and him took power and it was also this success and then the framing of it or the decolorization of it how they fall and collapse and he gets assassinated like you feel the hardships and like they're trying to you know hide from the people closing in on them you know he's going to get assassinated and it was so haunting seeing that whole world get destroyed and the cia's training you know these troops and everything he stood for is just gone um well the execution of shay is from his point of view so it feels as if you have been assassinated oh, that brutal scene when he gets shot in the stomach yeah and the camera tilts down and it's going out of focus and all you're hearing is um, what's the actor's name who plays it? Benicio Del <laughs> Sorry. From traffic. <laughs> From traffic. Um, you know, and he's breathing heavily. And I was just like, I felt that bullet, you know. I was just like, oh my gosh. Uh, just how much this film haunted me, I just have to say it's one of the best I've seen. It definitely didn't work. It was a two-part. It was too exhaustive. It was too big of a project. And the brilliant documentary that I saw on the Criterion release of this, um, Sodenberg says in the very last part of this and i think this is really interesting to showcase it tells you a lot what what's going through sonnenberg's mind after this film i think this film was like apocalypse now it really broke him really hurt him or so yeah um he says 
I can't sit here and tell you it was worth it, the time and the money, my own money, and the effect it had on the people that worked on it. It also made me consider the issue of whether or not movies matter anymore at all. I think there was a period when they mattered culturally. I don't think they matter anymore. So that added to the sense of what was the point of eight years of work when movies have become so disposable. There aren't many opportunities for them to be taken seriously like they were in the 60s and 70s here in the United States. I guess the point of some art is to illuminate. I guess I just don't see any evidence that it's happening or it happens for 10 minutes and they you know they're thinking about what to go eat and it's just so sad like I guess the negative reaction this film and he put eight years into this film just like you know (laughs) I mean when you think about it in eight years yeah you could have made four other films and it wasn't eight years of like take your time seemed like it was yeah a lot of time pre-production but it was go 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 the red cameras were overheating they had to put ice packs on it because these were prototypes he was getting off the line shooting with it like the images you get that you won't see again because reds evolve so much and digital cameras evolve so much and the choreography of the battle scenes with the train collapsing he had to you know that was very sparse sparse those moments where he had to shoot and, and stuff like that so it was all go 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 he had to think um laterally about to get out of situations working within the constraints of his budget so credit to him i thought it was brilliant but yeah definitely wasn't a success (laughs) part of it is the editing as well i mean though it seems very authentic and very real um it jumps all over the place exposition wise there's some problems there black and white Yeah. yeah i mean you're going too artistic to get a mainstream audience it's not a surprise that this wasn't received so well um and that's part of who he is as a director. I mean, you expect that. But that so, uh, slims down the audience. Even more. Yeah. And, you know, there are people who probably are fans of Soderbergh who still won't enjoy this. You know what I mean? Um, and I think people who love Che and his whole... Oh, great, a film about Che. Yeah. And they're falling asleep. You know, the moment those flashbacks start, the black and white. And I love that. Stephen, if you listen to it, I loved everything you did. It's a masterpiece. Don't touch it. Don't re-edit it. <laughs> uh, I assume Stephen Soderbergh is listening to this. I mean, let's be honest. Hi, Stephen. Great, great of you to tune in for the podcast. Um, but unfortunately, this reminds me... It's very slow moving, but it reminds me of Medellin from the Entourage. <laughs> yeah, I was... Films. I think I brought that up when we first discussed this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing that I thought about when I was watching this, obviously, the uh, it must be difficult to direct a film in another language. I don't know whether or not Soderbergh speaks Spanish, you know, but if he doesn't, he's assuming the acting and stuff that's happening is correct. Yeah, I don't know how that works. I, I know Soderbergh's such a genius. I wouldn't be surprised if he can speak Spanish fluently now. <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, yeah, the... Um, you must think that you're detached if he doesn't speak Spanish. That's what I'm assuming, that he doesn't speak Spanish. If he does, obviously sure, it's a different story. Sure. But if he doesn't, he's telling a translator. The translator is telling that person. Hopefully the message is getting across. And then hopefully the dialogue is what he wanted it to be. You know, and he sort of he doesn't know at the time whether or not he's gotten this. You know, He's sort of got to trust these other people. And obviously they'd be people who would he would trust. Mm, you know, he, yeah. Confidential kind of aides of his. But, yeah, you've got, you got to imagine the difficulties shooting in a foreign country. He must rely on people to even get him over the border of places and, like, get them out to the set. Then they have to stay at the set, you know, and just, like, the frustration of that. I mean, uh, Spielberg famously said between takes on Jaws that he would, like, listen to music 
read a comic book, escape from that while they set up the camera and stuff. I'm not sure that that's what Soderbergh was doing here. He was probably invested in this all day long. Yeah, and editing it probably on his free time. Yeah. And part of that, like, draining process is why you get the quote you read. Yeah. Of um, why he's suddenly disillusioned with um, why this wasn't more well received. And it's, like we talked about before, like a biopic, it's, it's one of those ones where he's taken a real person and he's trying to tell a really important story that he considers really important um and on the strength of Aaron Brockovich people probably thought he could do it you know this was considered unfilmable I'm sure in some parts people must have been going you're nuts right oh Steven Soderbergh yeah go (laughs) do whatever you want maybe as a six part of this would work for TV for for HBO for like a band of brothers kind of you know epic oh I like it I don't think he should touch it but I can see why it wasn't a success like yeah the as I said the viewers who want to see learn about Che they don't know anything about Sonnenberg and they're watching this they're seeing flashbacks they're seeing a lot of dialogue that you know they're not getting into it and then pe- people who are Sonnenberg fans it's just such a demanding film for four hours you got to sit through you know it, but I think it, it's very rewarding I think it's a really rewarding film you just gotta you know find that time <laughs> yeah well I mean yeah of the films we're mentioning I wouldn't put it at the top of the list of people sure. to watch for Soderbergh but um, it is one of those ones where it's an experience in its in and itself yeah which leads us to the girlfriend experience <laughs> what segues <laughs> 2009 the girlfriend experience this one as well was out of sequence this one starred Sasha, Sasha Gray. And you all know Sasha Gray as people. Do, do we? <laughs> For those of you uh, familiar with pornography, you may know who <laughs> Sasha Gray is. Allegedly, she's a huge porn star. And this is her first kind of legitimate acting gig. And having Soderbergh pitch this film makes it legitimate, doesn't it? I mean, she could um, be sitting with a, another director and this would never be made. Yeah. The fact that Soderbergh wanted to do this is the reason it happened. Um, and the girlfriend experience is a thing where I guess you hire somebody and um, they act as if they are your girlfriend rather than uh, I guess just having sex that night or whatever there's more of an intimacy created there more of a bond and um, you've seen this one as well? Yeah I've seen this one I also heard the audio commentary he does an audio commentary with um, Sasha Gray Okay Any insights from that? Not much because he just talks about um, the Sasha Gray like uh, what he's really interested in is trying to get because obviously Sasha Gray has huge experience in that area I'm not saying she's an escort but she's as a porn star she's been with a lot of like guys and like he's just trying to crack or oh, how do you feel about this and you find from that commentary Sasha Gray is a really intelligent girl she's very very intelligent and it's just interesting hearing her take on things where she wants her career to go and stuff like that yeah personally I'm not sure that her career will go very far yeah like, sure in the acting yeah yeah I yeah, think she did Entourage as well yeah, yeah she was Vinnie Chase's girlfriend for a bit but yeah. she was a very destructive negative influence on him I think yeah. in the second last season or something of Entourage maybe the last season I can't recall um, but it was all edited in a way that you were getting bits and pieces of the story out of order and it was one of those like 
think pieces you know and the um, dialogue is like i heard a lot of people criticize the dialogues a lot of throwaway dialogue but i don't know it came off as really natural to me it's probably it, more of that improvised kind yeah of style. And, but it, i like that style because it sounds more realistic yeah. like uh, i guess a lot of people thrown off well they're just talking about nothing kind of like tarantino's death proof how people go on they're just talking about movies and did all the beginning of reservoir dogs like everyone pop talks culture up. exactly and they're just having like normal conversations but to me it flowed naturally it's interesting with the girlfriend experience in new york like prostitution's illegal there um in america but since the internet like prostitution's always been there but it is illegal in america but since the internet girls don't have a middle person anymore they can put up their website put pictures on themselves and but the only downside is they have to screen everyone who calls up like make sure they're real clients and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so they get the full amount of money but it's more work on the in the sense that they have to screen everyone and it shows the competitive nature of the escorting business like guys might want younger girls and and things like that i thought it was a very fascinating movie definitely won't appeal to a lot of people like they'll see a girlfriend like sort of like sex lies and videotapes oh girlfriend experience you know there's hardly any nudity you don't see any sex scenes it's actually a very strong character piece about the it's a drama it's a drama about um you know the escorting and the relationship is so different because the guy he she's seeing who's a normal guy who works as a gym uh, trainer personal trainer he knows that she's an escort and it's such a weird sort of high maintenance relationship because he knows she's going out sleeping with guys and it's just such a different level of love that i don't understand i'm sure 99 percent of people um, don't understand how that relationship works but sharing know. a person basically exactly yeah. yeah very strange very strange level yeah yeah and i think Ultimately, this will be one of his more forgettable films, sure. unfortunately. Yeah, I um, liked it. Yeah, I liked it's, it. I've, like I said, I don't think Sasha Gray is going to pop and like have this massive career because there's too much stigma with the pornographic background. Um, and so I feel like because she won't continue to grow as an actress, this won't be that point which they reference and say that's where she became legitimate. You know, this will be just kind of one kind of variation in her career. You know, maybe she'll do a couple of dramatic things, but... Like, like I said, uh, I don't think... She was not strong enough as an actress. Sure. I think she was okay, but she was basically being herself, wasn't she? Yeah. Some variation of herself. And, uh, yeah. Sodenberg um, is, lives in New York and does a lot of his work in New York. And this film is set in New York, one of the few films that are. And it's just shot so cold. Like, I don't know, maybe there's no other way to shoot New York. But I don't know, I just don't feel this love and intimacy and enthusiasm for New York. Mm. It just feels like this corporate world run by Wall Street, you know, and very upper-class restaurant sort of thing. It's just like, oh, doesn't look like a cool place. <laughs> the, the place films are set for Soderbergh is definitely another character. Like, we mentioned Vegas for um, Ocean's, yeah, Ocean's Eleven. 11, yeah. Well, and the next uh, collaboration with Matt Damon is The Informant, 2009. Wow, interesting. The film is set from 1992 to 1997 and based on a true story with creative liberties taken so there, as the opening titles say. <laughs> so, you know, some of this is true. This is based on a person. Um, he's a compulsive liar, though, uh, which we don't know right away. We're following this Matt Damon character. Um He's clearly a muse of uh, Steven Soderbergh with the seven films they do together. But it's more of a slower drama after like Oceans and Bourne and The Departed. You know, this is kind of interesting because Matt Damon is playing a regular guy. You know, he's got a bit of weight on him. He's got some glasses. He's playing kind of nerdy. You know, uh, it's not the Matt Damon that people have been used to in the years leading up to this. Um, 
Yeah, uh, he turns FBI informant against the lysine business, which is, you know, corn syrup and uh, so forth. It's very voiceover heavy, this uh, film, which often, you know, uh, the voiceover is something completely unrelated, like a stream of consciousness kind of thing going on in the background. We've criticized voiceover before on this podcast. Uh, It sort of works, but it is one of those things where you're getting to know the character through listening to their thoughts, you know, which is can be heavy-handed at times. Um, title cards, I thought I would mention, is a staple of Soderbergh films as well. Like, sometimes he'll throw up, like, Amsterdam or something in Oceans and so forth, you know, um, to sort of split up a movie and, like, mm-hmm. you know, into chapters yeah. sort of thing. Uh, and that's one thing we haven't mentioned to this point. This film has many title cards, you know, breaking up the sort of... Um, the film and this is based on a true story isn't it yeah yeah um he he thinks he's he, he refers to himself as agent 0014 twice as smart as 007 <laughs> that's awesome you know the, the humor of this comes from uh <laughs> the fact that once he starts talking he'll talk to everyone and anyone including the wall street journal like he'll pick up the phone and he'll start talking to the wrong people about the wrong facts and he just is an open book he he's not twice as smart as 014 and <laughs> he he made up an adoption story within the film so people would treat him better um it is quite fascinating the the story all of which is true um it doesn't end that well for him because he uh invents uh bank account details and fake people and embezzles money from his company and uh that all becomes apparent as he turns informant and so forth like um yeah he's sort of going down with the company it's it's very interesting and very enjoyable and by the end you're still not completely sure of the true events because there's an amount of money that he steals and the number continues to change throughout every time he's talking about it and it keeps going up so he says, you know, I stole $2 million from the company, you know. And later on, he's like, you know, just because I stole $6 million from the company. And you're like, how much is this? <laughs> and then later on, he's like, you know, I never really apologized for stealing $16 million from the company. And they're like, how much was that? What did you just say? <laughs> like, there's this continued kind of what is true and what is not true about this. He's uh, married, you know, he's like a family guy. And uh, the... <laughs> the mess he gets himself involved in is it's comical you know this has kind of elements of like a coen brothers kind of yeah um, yeah yeah especially the soundtrack as well is crazy Mm. (laughs) but i found it very interesting you've seen it i've seen it yeah and i liked it yeah yeah definitely it is likable yeah i've written here solid performance from matt damon in a think piece you know it's a very cerebral and intelligent film but at the end of you like yeah as you say is that true (laughs) uh let's jump on to contagion yeah which uh 2011 as we lead up to his final film yeah well this is a highbrow horror movie soderbergh set many parameters in this film such as cannot show the president no helicopter shots um it is a clinical portrayal of a killer virus outbreak and the effect that has on the world um i thought the film was brilliant i heard a lot of people hated this um like when i was on facebook or twitter people going oh it's so boring i was like oh okay it's a horror film like yeah it is a horror it's film just but not just what people expected exactly because yeah. you cannot see a virus it's just affecting people it's just how it affects people but the, the, the horror is that this could happen exactly yeah. and the realism of it and it's so fascinating i i heard an interview with him like when he was researching for this he literally met 
all the heads i can't remember the main place it's on the game pandemic for those of you who play their board game <laughs> but the place where they study viruses and where it'll actually he met all those people and he said they all say the same thing a big virus will outbreak in the near future and it will kill a, a percentage of the world and he said but i'm not scared because i met all these people and these guys are the smartest people in the world and i have no doubt that they will find the cure within that and contagion after watching is so frightening i remember looking at cups and like thinking where the lips have gone looking at spoons looking where the handprints have gone over oh my gosh (laughs) yeah i mean i think having a a great cast for this as well made it more uh relevant you know people suddenly wanted to see this film you know um it was it was really interesting to see how everybody reacts in those circumstances obviously you've got the matt damon character who loses his wife and and becomes and his a, kid one of his kids becomes oh. a single father you know to one of his kids and has to kind of carry on and as well his wife played by gwyneth paltrow was having an affair you know which is already bad news for him to receive but then obviously she dies he never gets that confrontation with her kate winslet's in this film uh what's his name jude law is in the film you know there's like a series of like strong performances in smaller roles you know but the way it sort of burns through people and like you just see one guy infected on a train or you know the way it spreads it is horror you know just not how people thought it was exactly not a traditional sense of the horror film yeah i just remember just from our earlier what we're saying earlier about um the trial it starred jeremy irons i just remembered it so sorry jeremy (laughs) irons one of my favorite actors (laughs) Jeremy, if you're listening, <laughs> our deep apologies. Yeah. Uh, 2011 also is Haywire. Oh, yeah. Soderbergh cast MMA fighter Gina Carano in a spy action thriller. Carano is flanked by high-level actors such as Michael Douglas, Michael Fassbender, and Bill Paxton and Ewan McGregor. The film's pacing and style reminds me of um, The Limey. Um, Soderbergh just loves the 70s. It's just in his DNA. Uh, displays all legitimate MMA moves. Fight sequences never really seen before like he also fights with the star of magic mike um channing tatum channing tatum he fights channing tatum early in the film gets him to an arm bar just like Mm -hmm. wow um i thought the film was very solid just not great it's just a spy thriller with gina carano who isn't an actor actor so sort of going back to girlfriend experience getting this person who's very good in that world and just casting them in that so she's an MMA fighter obviously she's very good fighting putting her into a spy action movie very fascinating movie super intelligent Antonio Banderas is also in it I just didn't think it was great and despite the action scenes like because I love mixed martial arts and stuff like going wow cool mixed martial arts move I still felt the choreography like it was heavily like almost like a dance sequence and I personally prefer action sequences when they're more organic they seem more brutal and real rather than it's a fight sequence you know stuff like that it's hard to improvise a fight scene it is it is very hard yeah Yeah, even though in wrestling they improvise a lot of fight scenes we did a interesting podcast about mma where we covered the warrior or warrior i think it's called um with joel edgerton and tom hardy so there's more insight there to mma as well if people are interested in finding it yep um his interest in actors as well sometimes i think he was in schizopolis so he's like acting isn't that hard anybody can do it maybe there's like an element of he has tried it therefore he thinks other people can try it and it's like you know an element of learning on the job and finding out how to do it through direction as well i mean 
it's interesting the casting decisions like uh, they experimental um, due to like you say an MMA fighter uh, we see the girlfriend experience you know there's all these people who no, wouldn't necessarily be considered the lead of a film and um, the two biggest and best examples one is uh, Full Metal Jacket the drill sergeant I can't remember forgetting his name but Stanley Kubrick cast him because he was an actual drill sergeant and he was brilliant like he was so real another one is Dennis Farina who just passed away if you guys want us to do a podcast on his career we'd love to um, he was in Snatch and stuff like that he was an advisor for Michael Mann he was an actual detective for Chicago mm-hmm. and Michael Mann just cast him as a bit part playing a villain like a thief and he was fantastic and that just seems so real so yeah you get those examples people doing those things and yeah. Danny Trejo is another one yeah. um, he oh was, I didn't know yeah he was in prison and he learned to fight and so he was brought on as like a fight choreographer kind of guy and he just had to do a little fight scene and like that led to another role as like a thug as a criminal as like he kind of and eventually you know he's Robert Rodriguez has grabbed him and um, put him in more prominent roles to the point where he's now Machete and Machete Kills, you know. <laughs> and people know who Danny Trejo is, you know, even if they only know him as the bartender in Anchorman, yeah. who he says, chicks can do stuff now, you know. Like. <laughs> All right, well, we'll jump to Magic Mike 2012, which um, we did an entire Pod Me If You Can episode. It's episode 38 for those looking. It's entirely dedicated to Magic Mike. Uh, though we'll quickly say... You know, it's based on Channing Tatum's life as a stripper before he was a more legitimate actor, before he did Step Up. And uh, we talked in some depth about Magic Mike. Yep. And um, we both found, despite the fact that it was about male strippers, and neither of us are particularly interested in male strippers, it was a very well put together piece. Yeah. And we enjoyed it much more than we thought we would. And we watched it independent of each other and both came to the podcast saying... It was pretty good, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah. it was made for like ten million. It grossed an insane amount of money. They're talking about a sequel for it. Yeah, um, but Soderbergh isn't going to be directing. I heard. No. Well, if he's retired, and yeah. that's the point of this podcast. <laughs> he, he will produce and he'll advise. But yeah, seemingly, yeah, yeah. I, we both thought Magic Mike was brilliant. It was really good. And uh, in the sequel, for those playing along, uh, Jamie Fox is rumored to be in it as well. Oh right. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's got nude pictures out on the internet, so therefore. You know, he probably doesn't have too big a problem with nudity. <laughs> since, as well, I think he was nude in uh, Django Unchained. He was hanging upside down nude. Yeah, I, I've got to watch that movie again because I still can't remember him <laughs> being nude. Um, just with just before we get into the next film, um, he was on he was on project to do Moneyball, and uh, with Soderbergh. Brad Pitt. Yeah, Soderbergh yep. was, and he was all set to go, and something happened. No one is a hundred percent clear what happened. Only Soderbergh, Brad Pitt, and the producers know. But he was approaching it in a real documentary type fashion, going experimental. He was fired off. And I'm assuming Brad, because Brad Pitt went ahead and made it, won Academy Awards and stuff like that. Oh, he didn't win. Oh, well. um, He was nominated. The film got Academy Award nomination nominations people were definitely nominated i don't know yeah yeah i don't know what it won i think it won adaptation or well, might have been best supporting actor by that guy in jonah uh, hill yeah i think I jonah think, hill won something i don't think he won oh he got nominated i definitely think he got nominated, he got nominated. okay <laughs> um we can't recall but i i think i don't know how that affected Soderbergh. i think he was a bit angry about that because he invested a lot of time as you would be but mm. i don't know how that affected his relationship with brad pitt or anything like that but it's interesting it like is. after magic mike such a big success he still has that stigma always experimental you know (laughs) well he's found a new favorite in matt damon and now going haywire to magic mike to side effects channing tatum is now prominently becoming a favorite of um soderbergh's because side effects 
has um, Channing Tatum and uh, Rooney Mara, who was uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. And um, we have mentioned side effects on the podcast before. It's um, it's from 2013. It is the second last film Soderbergh ever did to date um, after uh, Magic Mike. He went and did this film that uh, I only saw it on DVD. I didn't see it at the movies, though. I understand it. It went there. Um, and it's this fascinating little story uh, about drugs, basically, and the side effects that those drugs have. Um, I can't recall the podcast we talked about it on, but um, Channing Tatum delivers a strong, if not brief, performance. Uh, Rooney Mara is really the star of this one. Yeah. And uh, it's got some twists and turns, and I, I was pushing for us to... Um, possibly do a podcast about it in the future if people are interested in that yeah definitely leave a comment you know find our facebook page and uh, leave us a comment there everything is linked from www.podmeifyoucan.com so but i remember you really liking this film because on the recommendations you're like man you gotta check this out yeah 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 i feel like um i went in with you know normal expectations and it exceeded them like uh, I thought it was really interesting. A couple of things about it, which is always the case with me on this podcast, I always find a couple of things which I'm like, this didn't work and this didn't work. But overall, I generally uh, had a really good vibe about it and a very, very positive experience watching side effects. Um, Behind the Candelabra, we move on to... last his, film. His final film. And the thing about this was, I'm imagining some producers somewhere was hoping Michael Douglas would pass away because the way this film plays is like it would be an amazing final film for Michael Douglas and obviously spoilers have been said but um, you've seen it and I've seen it and at the end Michael Douglas Liberace is literally ascending to heaven and you could imagine an audience standing and applauding Michael Douglas for his career at that moment you know what I mean like it seems like a very appropriate final film and he won an Emmy I think for it being um yeah this is interesting because this was made by HBO this isn't your standard film made by studio released by studio this is the Game of Thrones people going (laughs) hey Steven Soderbergh make a movie for us we'll make it so it doesn't count like in the Academy Award realm but it is that's really, why, that's why I was nominated at the Emmys. Yeah, yeah, but this looks like a movie. This looks like Ocean's Eleven or something. You know, this is in back to his roots in Vegas. You know, and stuff like that. Well, it was released in Australia at theaters, but the US because they're like Liberace. You know, <laughs> no one's going to watch this in the US. You know, Australia is perhaps more tolerant of uh, the subject matter. You know, um, than a lot With of the sexuality and stuff. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. I I thought the film was brilliant. It's really long. It drags you into that world. Another biopic piece, just like Shay. Um, and it's the performances are the key in this film. Michael Douglas and Matt. Matt Damon, firstly, is just fearless. Brilliant for taking on this role. Really hardcore role. And Michael Douglas, oh my gosh. I've never seen him ever in a role like this. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's insane. I thought it was a brilliant movie. A brilliant film um, to like a brilliant last film to such an amazing amazing career um i i'm just i of tried soderberg of, so, of, of soderberg of michael, michael douglas, douglas of michael soderberg. douglas at time of recording is still very he's still much going and he, i'm sure he's got many films left um to go in his uh, amazing career uh I, ha- I tried researching this film. I didn't find much. I just found excerpts of interviews and sure. things like that. So maybe more time has to pass for more things to get written about. 
um, this film, but it's great. Go check it out. It's just long, you know, really long. That's the only thing I'll say about it. Well, it was written by the jilted lover of Liberace, um, based on his book. Uh, so Which is a, the character that Matt Damon's that playing. Matt Damon's sure, playing. Yeah. Uh, so it is um, this glimpse into the world, and it's a weird cycle. I didn't know much about Liberace before watching this film, uh, only that he was rumoured to be gay when he was alive, and presumably uh, it came out afterwards that he was gay because, you know, there's lots of That's pop culture references. That's the joke in Austin Powers, yeah. He yeah. goes, oh no, I never knew Liberace was gay. Who yeah. would have saw that coming? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, look, all the costumes and the flamboyance of him and the fact that he played the piano. These are the, the you know, raw facts that sort of... The, iconogra- uh, the icon of the Liberace, yeah, sure. Yeah, and this is all you sort of maybe know going into it. And then that's, you know, the limited knowledge that I had. And this glimpse into this world, I liked how it was like a cycle. There was somebody at the beginning of the film, and he was played by uh, somebody from 30 Rock, um, small role in 30 Rock, I don't recall the actor's name. And he uh, was about to become the jilted lover of Liberace. And he's replaced by Matt Damon in this kind of interesting way. Um, he gets completely absorbed into this Liberace world. He's basically a houseboy for Liberace. And his face is molded to look like him. <laughs> yeah, and it's like a plaything for Liberace in a way. They have this weird routine. They sit in a spa bath, you know, they soak, they uh, make love, they, you know, uh, go shopping. He's, it's as if he's got a pet, you know what I mean? And then when he tires of him or when um, the rift is such that, you know, it's no longer a healthy, happy relationship that it once was, um, the, a, new, a new lover is brought in and gradually replaces Matt Damon. And the interesting thing is, and this is a little bit graphic, but um, Matt Damon will have, uh, his character, will have sex with Liberace, but he won't allow Liberace to have sex with him. Yeah, sure. And Liberace dies from AIDS complications, and perhaps that's the only thing that saves, you know, him from getting the AIDS virus, you know, yeah. in this or at He least doesn't receive Reduces something. his <laughs> chances, yeah. certainly. Um, yeah, and that became a very interesting kind of plot point you know that Liberace calls him to his deathbed at one point in the in the film and and discusses with him you know that he you know he hoped he would be healthy and you know he just wants to know he's okay and stuff on the phone and and I found that really sort of fascinating um just that at the end he could be so compassionate to Liberace and how despite the fact that he's ruined his face that he sort of cheated him out of any property and belongings and things towards the end of the film with his sort of half prepared lawyer Paul Reiser from yeah. Mad About You um, the fact that he's in a way destroyed his face and his life he could still be decent with him at the end and you know uh, not really a deathbed confessional but like a way in a way a deathbed kind of you know mutual friendship yeah solidified in a way um they're an important part of each other's lives obviously yeah. uh it's and there's a, that level of love as well that's yeah. so either complicated or simple um to a certain extent but that there's that it is a love story in the end and it is a, a high maintenance one very complicated one mm-hmm. and yeah um everyone who did this was fearless i'll just say that to take on this subject matter and to make it with such high level craftsmanship yeah brilliant and look the set decorator alone was working overtime on this (laughs) the amount of sequins and beautiful things attached to a piano you know it was 
obviously based on reality. Yeah. So someone made these things initially. How are people going to watch this if it's not released soon? Just through hiring? It's on DVD. DVD. Yeah, just on DVD. Yeah, sure, I'm sure yeah. it's on iTunes and sure, yeah. various video-on-demand type sites. Yeah. Because I went to try and see this at the movies, yeah. and yeah, it was released here, but it was very brief, you know. Well, yeah. it's on DVD now, sure. so people yeah. can uh, can seek it out. And that is the final film Soderbergh is attached to as a director, which we've now covered off on all of his films. Um, he did make uh, a play. He directed uh, the cast of a play, including Kate uh, Blanchett, uh, and he made a little improvised film with them, which was never released in the public uh, at all, only the people involved in that play has ever seen it, and it's called The Last Time I Saw Michael Gregg. Um, he did shoot a small part of a, a film called Eros, which is very hard to attain and um, find out stuff about. <laughs> and he had a documentary as well, so if you're looking into his um, filmography at home, you'll sort of find those other instances. But this is the main portion of what he's been able to achieve in his career. He's from going into now painting. Um, he feels he's at a crucial part where he can master this level or go ahead and venture into it and still be good have enough time to get good at it so this isn't a good time but um the filmmaking world is well is now less because you were gone you know we've yes really lost a, an incredible talent of the last 30 40 years Oh, 1989 40. to 2013 yeah so, so it is a, an epic portion of like our lives yeah definitely well, and know. he's such a huge force in that that period he's he's an incredible talent no one else is like him and i really hope he comes back because he's still young and he's got a lot of great films he can still make you got to think that if the money's right and the script is right that he could be coaxed back out of retirement yeah I mean, it happens with actors as well all the time and so. look at all the brilliant performances he's got in our matt damon michael douglas we just mentioned um J- julia roberts benicia del toro they owe so much to him and yeah and you better believe that when he does come back to directing and i hope that he does as well that we will cover it off in this podcast <laughs> We'll be right there waiting. Won't yeah, we? thank you, Steven Soderbergh. You are the man. Um, and as well, thank you to our listeners. Obviously, 75 episodes is a small milestone for us as well. Um, we hope you continue to listen to our podcast, um, sending us recommendations through the Facebook page or uh, through hashtagging PMIYC on Twitter for PodMe If You Can. Otherwise, www.podmeifyoucan.com. You can find a link to our YouTube page there. What we're doing as well now as a sort of complimentary um, piece with uh, these audio podcasts, of which there are now 75, you will find uh, video podcasts, which we're calling Pod Me If You Can TV. Now, what you're going to find there is obscure titles uh, with famous people in them. So um, these are films that Lloyd, as you say, at the start or end of their career, yeah. uh, you know, you may not have ever heard of these films, but we've got ones up there with um, Sarah Jessica Parker, yeah. there's Michael Chiklis, uh, you know, tons of actors. There's probably the worst couple of examples. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, you'll find at least 18 episodes at time of recording. Um, we've got a few more, which we're going to do and put up shortly. I've got Jennifer a bra- Love Hewitt, sorry. That Jennifer Love Hewitt. Just came to my head. Sure, yeah. she's in one of them. Um, there's a Jennifer Aniston one coming yeah. up. Uh, we mentioned Jesse Bradford. He's in Speedway Junkie, which is one of the ones we've got up there. Yeah. Uh, these films you may not have heard of, but um, they were a crucial par- uh, part of 
some actors you may love and and we do uh, little five minute reviews on the website so if you check those out and leave us some feedback that'd be awesome also i haven't mentioned it in a while but we're on itunes and if you are getting this podcast through itunes it'd be great if you could rate us or leave a comment this is kind of how the itunes algorithm works um based on not just downloads but also you know comments and and ratings so we would appreciate that uh lloyd anything no that's it thank you so much if you made it this far two hours in um thank you so much you you obviously are a sodenberg nut and obviously a fan of the show thank you very much (laughs) thanks for listening guys we'll uh talk to you on the next one